You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, I pray that you would give me peace of mind so that I may decrease and your word supremely increase. Open our hearts and our minds to the truth of who you are as demonstrated in the life of your servant Leah. We thank you for the amazing way you brought the redemption of the world to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm operating under a couple of assumptions that I hope are not wrong, that all of us are at least somewhat familiar with the Leah, Rachel, Jacob saga. And we're in Genesis chapter 29 and 30. It's, it's a lot, so I didn't, I made the decision that we aren't going to actually read through it. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it and bring us along. And our, our hope is that we will see what God, who God is in this story and how it is that he works with a person like Leah. So if I mention something that you're not really familiar with, raise your hand or just know that you can read it cover to cover starting in Genesis chapter 29. All right, but like I was saying, Leah was the daughter of Laban. He lived in the land of Haran and he had a sister, Rebekah, and when she was a young lady, uh, she was picked to be the wife of Isaac. So she was taken from her land and brought to the land of Abraham and Isaac where they married and had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And we know that Jacob was um, a little bit of a trickster, a lot of a trickster, and at, at early in his adult life, he had managed to both... Uh, bargain for Esau's birthright as the older son he got that birthright over a pot of stew and then he dressed up like Esau and went into Isaac's tent with um, some animal skin on his arm so he would feel like Esau and he gets um, Isaac's blessing for the older son and this is all in cahoots with his mother, Rebecca, who realizes, you know, this might get a little dicey. Esau might have a few feelings. He might even be murderous. And I need to get my Jacob boy out of town. So she and Isaac send him to his uncle Laban's land. And he's to stay there until things cool down. And while you're there, get yourself a bride from the household of Laban. So um, Jacob obeys. And we know that on his journey to Haran, he had that soul-changing experience where he has the dream and the ladder comes down from heaven and there are sons of angels going up and down the ladder and then God appears um, at, at, in heaven and says, I'm going to bless you and his blessing is very similar to the one Abraham received. But he says, everything you do will prosper. I'm going to make you rich. You're going to um, have great success in your work. You are um, my chosen one to sprinkle the world with your offspring. 
So he comes with that blessing and he gets to Haran and the first thing he sees are some shepherds gathered around a well waiting for the stone to be removed so all the sheep can be watered. And they're waiting for one more shepherd who is in fact Jacob's cousin that he's never met, Rachel, Laban's younger daughter. And he takes one look at Rachel and he's in love with her. He, and then he can't believe it that not only um, is she this beautiful woman at a well, she's his cousin and um, she takes him home to her father who is Jacob's uncle. So um, like Laban is delighted to meet him. I'm sure he's thinking, oh good, another pair of hands. And in fact, he um, encouraged him to stay with them indefinitely and because he wants them there indefinitely, listen, I, I'll pay you. I'll pay you wages if you will help work for me in the fields. And Jacob, still being Jacob, says, well, how about we do this? Instead of you paying me, I will work for seven years for free. And at the end of that seven years, I will have Rachel as my bride. Um, and Laban appears to say, sure, we have a deal, but if you note carefully in the text, um, Laban says, well, yes, it probably would be better for her to marry one of her own than a local man here. So Jacob is satisfied that that is their um, understanding, and off he goes to work. And at this point, all we know about Leah, and remember Leah is our girl today, she is the older sister, and by the ESV translation, her eyes were weak, we are told. And I actually found a lot of different variations in that translation of this word weak. Some translate that Leah's eyes were kind. And then Eugene P Peterson, you know, in his The Message Bible, he says, he writes, Leah had nice eyes, but dot, 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 Leah, I mean, Rachel was stunningly beautiful. So here's what it reads in the ESV, Genesis 29:17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Leah did not compare to the beauty of her little sister. And let's pause for a minute and consider this assessment of female beauty. You know, as soon as Eve felt shame about her naked body, it seems that there has been a standard for female beauty um, used to calculate a woman's worth. I mean, it's true today, and it still can be very cruel, and it was true way back in the beginning. Um, we're told that Abraham made Sarah pose as his sister when they were in Egypt because she was pretty, and he didn't want them getting jealous of him having a pretty wife, so she had to pretend to be his sister. And then, I didn't know this, but uh, Isaac repeats the same charade with Rebecca because she too, we're told, was pretty. Um, and so here we have two sisters. Um, one is pretty and one is not. 
Um, and Leah is therefore, by her world standards, she's unlucky. And think about it, by no fault of her own, she has been evaluated and pronounced as unattractive. The sin of the broken world has limited her personhood and her possibilities, which weren't that many when you were a woman then anyway. Um, and if she can't get married, then she can't have children, and she is therefore of no use to anyone. She is merely a financial burden for her father. And also, just to be fair about these young folks, um, Jacob saw Rachel first and he fell in love immediately. There is nothing wrong or unusual about that. We're told in Genesis 29:20. I think this is kind of sweet. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Isn't that romantic? I mean, that sounds like true love. Um, he's out there in the fields every day, and he's like, it's, it's nothing. It was over in a minute. And you know, in truth, we don't know what Leah thought about this. Mark Genelette has always told me, you, it's so tempting to read into the text what it doesn't tell us, but we really need to be careful about doing that. So, a little speculation, because we don't know what Leah thinks about all this, but you know, she may have just been fine and happy for her sister. I kind of doubt that. Um, she may have felt jealous that her beautiful sister was loved by a man who was willing to work seven years for her hand. Or maybe Leah was spending her time fretting over the cultural rule of that day that a younger sister could not get married until the older sister had gotten married. So maybe she's thinking, I've got seven years to try to find somebody who will marry me so my sister can actually get married. We don't know. Um, but all that said, we don't know anything about Leah's attitude towards Jacob at this point. Um, in other words, based on our text, we have no reason to believe that we had a star-crossed lover situation going on here. What we know, there was a chosen, betrothed younger sister and an unchosen single one. What comes next, as we all know, is so wrong on so many levels. During these seven years of paying for Rachel's hand in marriage, Laban has been plotting all along that Jacob would, by deception, actually marry Leah, his oldest, his unwanted daughter. Neither Leah nor Rachel could have been in on this, I don't think. Rachel would have wanted to stop it. Leah might have had some feelings about it. So he's, this, is, this is Laban plotting on his own. And so what he was about to do was he was going to betray both his daughters as well as Jacob. And come on, we can get some satisfaction over Jacob being duped by Laban. You know, one trickster getting his just desserts from another one. There is even a sense of due justice in terms of Jacob. Hey, you Jacob tricked your blind father into thinking you were Esau, the older brother, the one he preferred, 
And now you're about to be tricked into thinking your bride is Rachel, the younger sister, the one you favor. But Leah, I mean, come on. Imagine with me that you are Leah and your father comes to you the morning of your sister's wedding feast and says, hey, this is what you're going to do tonight. You are going to dress up like a bride. You're going to go into that bridal tent. And while pretending to be your sister, you're going to consummate a marriage with this man who does not want you. Laban is forcing Leah to have sex with a man literally in the dark about her identity because that is the only way Laban thinks he can ever get Leah married off. I don't think it's too strong a point to say that Laban is forcing Leah into an act of prostitution. You know, her payment, she gets a husband. And Laban's cut, if you will, the pimp, um, is that he will no longer be financially responsible for Leah. Um, and Rachel, likewise, is betrayed by her father. Jacob, the man who has loved her for seven years, is about to marry, by mistake, her older sister, and she cannot warn him or do anything to prevent her father's treachery. It's a dark day in Laban's family, and while our 21st sensibilities are not the same as our ancient mothers and fathers when it comes to sex, love, and marriage, Laban's actions are sinful by any understanding. Anyway, Laban's plan is successful, and Jacob wakes up the next day in the marriage bed with Leah. I can just imagine misery all around. Jacob does not have Rachel. Rachel is not married to Jacob. And poor Leah must live with the shame that she assumed her sister's identity and is now yoked to a man who does not want her. He does not love her. The next turn in this story is just, um, I don't know about you, but I, I had misunderstood it all these years of thinking I was familiar with it. It's just a detail, but it's an important one. Um, as we know, Jacob confronted Laban immediately and said, what have you done? And Laban says, well, you know, in our country, the older sister is always married before the younger sister maybe unlike your people who seem to get the older, younger thing backwards. You know, you can sort of see him putting in that dig. Um, uh, but let, but then, he, then he offers a solution. He says, stay with Leah for a week, have a honeymoon, if you will, and at the end of that week, you can also marry Rachel and then you will work for me for seven years to pay for Rachel. Um, and this, by the way, um, gets rid of all of Jay Laban's issues. He will then be financially free of both Laban and Rachel, and he will have Jacob um, working for him for seven more years, and let's remember, God's blessing on Jacob is, is coming true in real time on Laban's land. Everything Jacob has been doing for his father-in-law has been blessed and fruitful and multiplying. Um, 
so I, what I missed before is I always thought that it was another seven years before Jacob could marry Rachel so that at least Leah was his wife for seven years. But no, in fact, she finds herself sharing him with her sister, the one that Jacob loves, within a week. And come on, if there is anything worse than being married to a person who does not want you, it must be to be married to someone with another wife whom he does love, while he doesn't love you. Um, Bonnie Blake writes, uh-oh, out of, she didn't write that. <laughs> I'll, just, uh, I'll just read it. Uh, Leah, no one wanted. She isn't wanted by her husband, Jacob. He disregards her. She isn't wanted by her father, Laban. He discards her. And she isn't wanted by her sister. She displaces her. Now, in um, this new state of affairs, this is Genesis 30, 31. He, we are told, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Note here, the agency is all God's. God opened Leah's womb. There's no talk about he appeared to Jacob in a dream and said, you're going to start um, getting Leah pregnant. It was all God opened up her womb and Rachel was barren. And um, we know that a woman's purpose in ancient Israel was to bear children. This was necessary for her survival as well as that of the family's survival. And Leah quickly becomes a fruitful mother. And as her sons continue to be born, it's really interesting. We can see through the names she gives them how her own relationship with God is unfolding. Now, hopefully this will be right. Oh, I guess we got them backwards. Anyway, all right. And this is a little harder to read, but I just wanted you to see the progression and the way Leah names her sons. So, first son, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And Reuben means to see. Leah, while she still pines for Jacob's love, believes that God is seeing her. It kind of reminds us of Hagar, right? Son number two, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he will give me this son also. Simon means here, to hear. Um, Leah still thinks of herself as hated, but the Lord obviously is hearing her lament. Son number three, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Levi means attached. Leah continues to put her hopes on the love of Jacob, but now it's more just a wishing that there would be some attachment. She's not so all about love. Then son number four, this time I will praise the Lord period. Judah means praise. Our girl Leah is finally less focused on her longings for Jacob. She merely praises God for his abundance. That's some progress, I would think. 
Okay, and at this point, God puts a pause on Leah's conceiving. And so Leah, and by the way, Rachel is still without children. Um, Leah decides to send her servant girl, Zilpah, um, into Jacob so that she might produce some sons for the family. And in fact, she does. She contributes two more sons for Jacob. Um, but Leah is the one who names them. You know, in a way, she's probably, she's getting, she's thinking, I get some credit here. She's my maidservant. I told her to do this. Um, it's been fruitful, so I get to name these boys. And so um, the, she has a son, and Leah says, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Then Zilpah bore a second son, and this is interesting. Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. So Leah's evolution from the girl unwanted and unloved is now the woman called by other women happy. They envy her fertility. They envy her sons. And it's all because of the compassion and blessing of God. Um, this is an evolution of a woman who did not have what she wanted, a woman to a woman who is now considered by her peers a blessed and happy woman. Six healthy sons and two more born at her command, all named by mother Leah. All right, there's one more short chapter in Leah's childbearing years, and like much of this family saga, it is quite bizarre. Um, you know, when Cameron talks about how to teach the Bible to your little ones, well, this would be a challenging one. We might not, we might not want our little six-year-old to be in this story quite yet. Um, it, it, this incident it also parallels um, the Esau giving his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. So these people are, they, they, they spend a lot of time bargaining. Bargain, bargaining. Um, but in short, Rachel and her son Reuben are in their tent, and Reuben has just come in with some mandrakes. And I got some very different de definitions of what a mandrake is, but it's, kind of, it's some kind of a fruit. Someone said it's like a mushroom. But, um, and while no one's agreed, some commentators speculate that the significance of a mandrake is that it was thought to improve female fertility. And let's remember, Rachel is still, still barren. She has not had any children. Her maidservant has had two, but she has not. And Leah replies to her sister with a snippy, why should you steal some of my son's mandrakes when you've already stolen my husband? There's um, some ownership there, huh? Rachel bargains with Leah. She says, let me have some mandrakes and you can have Jacob tonight. Apparently, Rachel <laughs> determines where Jacob sleeps and with whom. Um, and I don't mean to be crude, but come on. Um, was perhaps Rachel acting like Jacob's pimp? I mean, what's going on in that marriage? Uh, Jacob, honey, you're not here tonight. You're, you're, you're over in that tent. 
So when Jacob comes in that evening, Leah tells him he must come into her tent because she has hired, that's the word she uses, him for the price of their son's mandrakes. And is this not complete full circle? The prostituted daughter, Leah, forced by her dad to sleep with Jacob, has now paid for a night with Jacob. I mean, this level of family dysfunction is way above my pay grade, but um, God uses it. That's the point. God uses it, and in fact, Leah bears her fifth son, Issachar, and um, she names him Issachar because God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Issachar means wages. And then she has a sixth son, and this will be her last son. She also will then have her daughter, Dinah, but, you know, we don't have time for Dinah. Ha ha. Um, but the sixth son, Zebulun, and she names him Zebulun because God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons, and Zebulun means honor. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. And we don't know much more about Leah after this sixth son is born, but we do know several things worth noting, and I'm going to quickly go through them with you. When Jacob decides it is way past time to get out from under the dictatorship and the deceiving and the bargaining and the greediness of his father-in-law Laban, he is completely satisfied that he has done more than a lot of good for Laban, um, and he wants to leave, he calls his two wives, Leah and Rachel, just to see what they think about this and if they both, with their children, would be willing to go with him back to his land. And in one voice, it's very interesting in the Old Testament, you know, Leah and Rachel respond together, yes, our father isn't giving us anything. Um, our life is with you. Our children are with you. So um, they agree immediately. And their exodus back to Jacob's homeland is harmonious. And um, it, it's, they even they help each other. Okay, we also know that despite Leah's long pleas to be the the wife that Jacob would love and be attached to her when they are close to being greeted by Esau. They're making their way and they know that Esau is coming towards them with a band of 400 men. The, the message is he's coming to greet, but Jacob ain't stupid. He knows what he did to his brother. And so just in case he's really coming to um, strike an, offen uh, an offense, Jacob lines his huge party up in order of most, at least importance to most importance. And this is just telling. So it's servants and flocks first, then it's concubines, the two maidservants, and their sons, then it's Leah and her six sons, but last and the most important is Rachel and her baby, Joseph. So I don't think Leah was ever going to um, 
know that Jacob loved her, certainly loved her best. But you know, sometimes that is how God answers our prayers. Um, and this, uh, this has been a long narrative, and we'll never fathom it. But let's see quickly, what can we learn from this unwanted, unloved woman named Leah, who became the mother to six of the 12 tribes of Israel? Remember the Leah that no one wanted? She wasn't wanted by her husband, Jacob. He disregards her. She wasn't wanted by her father, Laban. He discards her. And she wasn't wanted by her sister. She displaces this. Is this, is this not just exactly what we did to the incarnate Jesus? Was he not disregarded, discarded, and displaced? Discarded. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Displaced. The governor again said to him, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Babarus. And then discarded. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then here we are all the way back in Genesis, looking at a story of a weak-eyed, overlooked girl who is responsible for naming eight of the tribes of the house of Israel, birthing six of them, and two of the ones that she birthed were the patriarchs of the two central institutions of the Old Testament, the priesthood, that would be Levi, and the monarchy, Judah, and the house of David. So, um, and, and I'm sorry, and who would enter history roughly 4,000 years later as our eternal high priest and the king of kings? And that's Jesus Christ, Leah's offspring, according to Matthew's genealogy. So our heavenly God uses the weak, the lowly, the statusless, the powerless to bring about his plan for our redemption. We are going to hear in the coming weeks um, about even more unlikely agents used by the Lord for this same reason. And all of these women, unbeknownst to them, were participating in the God-ordained event when God the Son would come himself as weak as a baby, as lowly and without status as a Nazarene, without the power of an army or a political movement to conquer sin and death for the whole world. And remember the meaning of Leah's sixth son's name, now my husband will honor me? Well, that, in fact, did come true. In Genesis 49:29, Jacob, on his deathbed, has his 12 sons gathered around him, and he's giving them very precise instructions about where he is to be buried when he dies. And he says, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers, that would be Abraham and Isaac, in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, which Abraham bought to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. 
So whenever Leah died, and they don't, we're not sure when that was, Jacob buried her in the ancestral burial place alongside Abram, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. That exactly where he was instructing his sons to bury him. So our Leah rested in a place of highest honor bestowed to her by Jacob, memorializing forever Leah's indispensable contributions to nothing less than the redemption of the world. I'm going to close in prayer. I don't know if we, but if you, I'd love if you have any thoughts or questions to throw them out there. But thank you, Father, that you use us weak and sinful and prone to wander just like sheep. Thank you that in your creative majesty, you love us and care for us and give us not what we think we need, but that which is infinitely more, your adoption of us as eternal sons and daughters. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.